You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Hargens. What's up, everybody? How are you doing this fine afternoon or evening or whatever it is you're listening to this show? I appreciate it because there's so many other things you could be doing, but you're spending time with people who care about independent music, the conversations around that, why it's important, how it places in context, and ultimately, why we celebrate this whole DIY culture and punk and hardcore and all that fun stuff. So I just always like to, you know, remind you why you're listening. But I mean, maybe you're listening to this on a, you know, week-to-week basis, or maybe you're just checking in once a month. Regardless, I'm incredibly excited to bring you today's episode from a, uh, frankly, a podcaster hero of mine. His name is Nate DeMeo. He hosts a podcast called The Memory Palace, who, if you have not checked it out, I highly encourage you to do it. It's basically, you know, less than 10 minutes, often like maybe seven, eight minutes, (laughs) but it's a, a really specific dive into a historical character, a figure, but the way that Nate does it is, um, I don't know, it's just really special. And he's been doing this show for many, many years. And, uh, yeah, he's just a talented dude. And I knew that he had a history of, uh, you know, being connected to the punk and hardcore scene via a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Roman Mars, who came on this show, uh, many moons ago. But uh, we were finally able to make this discussion happen, and boy, his his uh, his love for Ebullition Records and a lot of the uh, early Screamo stuff uh, is is really evident, and that's what we dig into in this conversation, amongst many other things. But uh, if you just know Nate as a podcaster, let me get ready to blow your mind. And if you don't know Nate at all, and you had, this is your introduction, you're going to be so stoked, and then you're going to check out his podcast, and you're going to like it that much more. But let's talk about some business pleasantries. How about you email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. It's always open, ready to you know respond to any other ideas or whatever the case may be. I just always uh, love to hear that feedback. You know, maybe someone just started diving into the show. I actually just got in contact with an old friend who I hadn't spoken to in many years. And he was like, oh man, I found out about your show and didn't know it was you. And then now I do. And here we are. <laughs> so... Do that, and you can also please leave a review on Apple uh, Podcasts because it just it helps legitimize the show. So if you haven't done it, you know everybody asks you to do these little five second things, but uh, you know maybe take the time today and do that. I would really appreciate that, and also support the advertisers in this show. Like when you hear my voice talking about a particular advertiser, that means I wholeheartedly endorse the thing. And, you know, I don't do any sort of like Patreons or any other things to support this show. So uh, I'm solely relying off of the advertising revenue to, you know, keep this, uh, this puppy afloat. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, uh, you know, I appreciate all three of those things. And even if you don't do any of them, I still appreciate you. So uh, let's dive into Nate. Like I said, you need to listen to the Memory Palace. It's one of my favorite podcasts out there. And And he's also a great writer in regards to humor, wrote on Parks and Rec, and he's uh, currently doing a uh, screenplay, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, really excited to bring you this conversation. So here's Nate, and uh, listen to us nerd out. You know, of course, I found out about your podcast. I can't pinpoint the year, but it definitely was via, you know, 99% Invisible, where either it was a recommendation, you know, Roman spoke about the show. 
and uh, w- immediately gravitated towards the I you know the, the general idea of the show deep dives into you know forgotten people of history like that you know captivated me already but then I was like this is different because this is like nerdy on four different levels <laughs> sure <laughs> and uh, us. Uh, us obsessive people like recognize each other immediately. So I already felt a kinship to you. I was like, okay, Nate is probably one of us and I just (laughs) need to figure that out. And I, not everybody has that obsessive curiosity, you know, if it's finding out about a first band seven inch and like, Oh, I got to have their demo tape next or whatever. Um, Has that just always kind of like been hardwired in you where it's like, Oh yeah, I got to dig like seven layers deeper. I'm not just a surface level sort of person. No, actually, I, to a certain degree, I think I'm a little bit of a surface level sort of person. Okay, <laughs> I mean, like, and I and I and um, I think that that I think that actually, um, you know, even though uh, there was, you know, there were definitely periods of my life in which um, I was a real sort of you know physical rabbit holer, meaning that like you do figure out who plays drums on that seven inch, and then you go, you know, you go order that other seven inch, and you follow the sort of like those sort of chains of connection. The thing that I've never been um, is a completist. Like I really have always sort of um, uh, like, I've always like kind of liked knowing a little about a lot of stuff. Um, I've just like a really just been sort of an extremely kind of excitable person, you know, that I just get so stoked on knowing that little thing that unlocks, you know, a different set of aesthetics. Like, I'm sort of never happier um, than when I am learning like the kind of like rules and learning the, um, the different uh, mechanisms by which different things are judged. And so that can be that I like watching the Olympics and watching some sport that I've never seen before. And then a couple hours into it being like, aha, that loser just executed a perfect, you know, Danish right. like toe stop. And therefore they picked up, you know, an extra 10 seconds in the curve. Or, you know, um, I have no tattoos, yet there's almost no show I enjoy more than Ink Master. And I can, uh, which is the reality competition show <laughs> with Dave Navarro. Oh, yes. Host. Very familiar. Right. Totally. And I, like, know the inside and out- outside, you know, inside and outside, uh, you know, the, the aesthetics and, and what makes a good, t- good tattoo. But I also have done that, you know, with pottery, et cetera, you know, on, on different TV shows. But it's mostly just that, like, um, I sort of like an enthusiast, but it really is just trying to find things that um, I find beautiful and that move me. And how can I get something, you know, out of this thing that is personally useful? And so when it comes to the memory palace, even, you know, some of how stories are generated and some of the instinct to do it is this kind of like constant wandering and wanting to know new stuff and wanting to figure out new things. But when it comes to death, you know, besides that, like, sometimes you really do have to go in depth to research it, et cetera. Um, the rules, you know, for me and the guiding sort of principle is I am only going as deep as I need to. And it's not just because like, that's how the work gets done, but it is because like, um, I'm going as deep, you know, into, uh, you know, learning about you know, this historical figure or this historical moment, um, only enough to sort of get my head around it and, draw something out of it that I find like personally moving or personally useful. And um, yeah, so it is interesting. Like I I don't have um, an obsessive streak or, you know, a completed streak. Like there, you know, even though, 
you know, like there were definitely like those few bands that I wanted to make sure I, I had everything, but it was never, um, it was never like, uh, you know, to demonstrate that I had it, um, mm-hmm. or the sort of like classic kind of hipsters game of one upmanship. It was literally because, Oh, there's another song out there. I need to hear it. Cause I also might love that too. Right. You're like a, you're a professional dabbler. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> right. I well, mean, yeah. I think so. I, 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 but I, I, I think you, um, you know, not only articulated the show well, so way to go, but I think the, that, that idea of you're getting out of it what you kind of put into it, and I don't mean that in like a myopic fashion, sure. like you're finding the thing that you gravitate towards, and that is what you are wrapping the whole conceit around rather than like, oh, yes, I've already researched this person ex- exhaustively, yeah. and then you'll reverse engineer it from there. No, I think that that's true. I think that that I think the reason why the stories work is because um, when it was originally conceived, and I think this is basically sort of still been true. Um, I think about like uh, I think about I remember watching like the Ken Burns documentary about Lewis and Clark, which is something I was marginally interested in. You know, I watched it, you know, over the course of many hours, kind of laid up, you know, late one night at a friend's apartment when there was sort of nothing else on, on TV, uh, you know, in a friend's apartment who had no cable kind of thing. And we got sort of sucked in and it was pretty interesting, but there was one sort of moment in it that must come like four and a half hours in, which is just so moving and beautiful. And I got to that moment because I had watched the previous four and a half hours and I now knew everything. And, um, but I wanted to find out if I could make a show that was only about those moments that it was like, like, what can I do to, uh, how can I, is there a way like a song does, is there a way to, um, essentially like, uh, to, you know, move someone, um, through storytelling through like literally just like, let me, you know, tell you the same kind of story that Ken Burns might tell in, in, in four and a half hours. Is there a way to do that in four and a half minutes? And I was, you know, because so many times, like when you're, you know, on a road trip or you're talking to your spouse or whatever, and they have just read something that thrills them, um, you know, in the paper or in a magazine or whatever, or they've heard some amazing story. Um, it is their energy and their excitement that um, translates the story for you. But it, but it is ultimately them th- reflecting on why does this story matter to me? Like, you know, why am I connecting to this thing so deeply? And then uh, giving you just that like little anecdote, just giving you that little, you know, that the, the fact that the story all hangs on and, and saying like, isn't this cool? And to me that like, isn't this cool is what relationships are built on, but it's also like, it's what the best, it's what the best um, kind of uh, introductions to art are based on. It's the friend that you're walking through the museum with who's, who like shows you a painting you might've passed by, but then says like, God, look at this thing. And it's their excitement and seeing it through their eyes in part that allows you to, you know, uh, kind of absorb their love in a way. And um, so that's, I mean, that's always kind of been like the mission of the show, if there is one, which is, it isn't to like, remember anything in particular. Um, and it isn't to, you know, make sure that these people, you know, uh, aren't forgotten or to like lift them up. So they're on, on a par with other figures, you know, and sort of remember, it is to kind of like merely connect, you know, with people around things that have moved me. And to try to sort of uh, move them in the same uh, way that I was at one point myself. 
Sure. No, I, I, uh, I, the, the through line that I'm, I'm, or the thread that I wanted to pull on there was just that, that notion of the, yeah, the, the passion economy, you know, just yeah. like when, <laughs> when you are evangelizing for a thing, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a record or whatever, you, when you bring it to a person, like they're going to see it through your lens as opposed to vice versa. And so that's ex- like, you know, I, I always get, and I'm sure you maybe don't actively get frustrated, but it's just like when people, have put your particular show where it's like, yeah, it's a history podcast. And it's like, well, yes, I guess in like <laughs> yeah, broad ter- right, <laughs> broad terms it is, but it's like, look at this, look at this crazy thing about what happened to this human. Like yeah. that's, and you know, that's obviously more difficult to describe, but uh, yeah, I, I see what, exactly what you're talking about. No, I've never, I feel like I've, uh, I feel like I'm not sure that a person listening to this right now actually understands what the show is about. And that is on me because I, I've never been able to boil it down uh, effectively. And I, and I, and, and like, I don't doubt that that's the strength of the show. Like I, I like, that's great. Like I, I'm proud of that, et cetera. But at the same time, like, yeah, I totally bristled when it's like, Oh, it's a, it's a history show. There's these, it's about, I'm going to tell you these uh, stories about, you know, things that have slipped through the cracks. I'm like, eh, I don't know if I would listen to that show. Yep. You know? <laughs> you know, t- yeah, totally. Like I may just fall asleep by listening <laughs> totally. to the first 30 seconds of it. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, well, we'll, we'll be able to hit on some of your, you know, music interests and stuff like yeah. that, but I, I wanted to you know, focus on the fact like you're born and raised in Providence, correct? Correct. Yes. And, uh, you know, Providence is such an interesting town for a myriad of reasons, but, you know, more specifically kind of with the, the music of that particular town, because, you know, it, it's, a, it's, large enough city, but it's obviously a small enough city that there is that sort of communal aspect. But then there's been such interesting music that's come out of, you know, Rhode Island, uh, you know, in particular. And what was your kind of like first entry point to, you know, I guess like independent music and stuff that you were finding on your own as opposed to, you know, your parents or, you know, older siblings and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the truth of the matter is that I think that um, that story does begin with uh, my dad uh-huh. in that like, um, you know, he, he loved music and, and had a, like a big, in a sort of a big, re- you know, record collection. And in a lot of ways, um, his sort of struggle as like a music fan kind of listening on his own was that same sort of question that everyone sort of has at one point, which is essentially like, why is this thing popular and this thing isn't, <laughs> you know? And, um, so he, you know, has on the one hand kind of quite straightforward, um, you know, guy who, you know, graduated in college in 1967 music taste in that, like, he, you know, loves strains of classic rock, et cetera. But he, you know, kind of never necessarily accepted the classic rock canon. Like all along he would, you know, he might've bought like the top 10 of, or the top 20 from Rolling Stone in 1969 or whatever. But like, while over time, you know, the music of that year just kind of became this record by the doors, this record, this record by, the Beatles, this record by um, the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys, et cetera. You know, my dad, you know, remembered and clung to that, no, the number 19 record is my favorite record. And that was by Spirit, or that was by Love, or that was by these bands that, you know, um, you know only sort of have kind of been discovered and lauded, lauded later on, but just kind of never, you know, grabbed hold in the consciousness. And, and so, he was very, um, he really championed, championed his own taste. And so some of it would be like, oh, you should listen to this band. I love them. You know, you'll like them too. But, but within that was also the message that, um, uh, that these guys are getting a raw deal by history, <laughs> you know? Sure. 
And um, so as a result, like, I really think that like part of my, you know, interest in discovering music that other people didn't like, or that other people weren't into, um, was really kind of fostered by the sense that my dad had that people liked, liked the wrong, the wrong music. And, (laughs) um, or they liked the wrong album by the Rolling Stones, because my dad loves the Stones and the Beatles and all that stuff. But that there was always like, you know, um, uh, yeah, that there were always these sort of alternative, you know, avenues, um, even within, you know, the sort of mainstream, um, of things. And so, you know, when I, when, when one kind of becomes, you know, I think I really fell in love, uh, with music as like a solo listening experience when I was sort of in sixth grade and it, it, um, was very much, uh, kind of encouraged by my father in that, like his record collection was full of stuff that would be interesting, interesting to me. But um, because it was so sort of like large, um, his collection, like I was able to like claim things that felt like my own. And so, um, you know, he had a couple of, you know, so like I got, I was super into Lou Reed in sixth grade and I was, uh, and I really got into talking heads and, you know, he had, all of those things that weren't his favorite albums, but he had a couple talking heads albums and he had a few, you know, Lou records here and there. Um, and he was so happy to have me kind of pull them out and make them my own. But there was something uh, getting to your original question a long time later, there was something about the, the, my knowledge that the talking heads who I loved and who I also like knew were a big deal because I also read his Rolling Stones and stuff like that. Um, were started at the Rhode Island School of Design, that that was a very exciting idea for me. That, you know, David Byrne, who was like, like at the time, kind of like a personal hero, um, uh, just kind of like showed me what like a, like a weird white guy could do, essentially. Right. Um, you know, had, uh, you know, worked at the hot dog place that we used to go to, you know, and uh, before my time. And like, that was really exciting. And, and so I think that like, a lot of my, a lot of like my experience with the idea of music making um, and the idea of like Providence is a music city and like Boston is a music uh, city just up, up the road um, was this like kind of first inclination that, um, that, uh, you know, sort of like that, those, that the experience of making music and also frankly, the experience of like stardom within music um, was a theoretically, um, was like a theoretically accessible thing. And so like, as you know, kind of high school went on, we, we had kind of like a big alternative radio station, you know, that was run by Brown, but was very, um, by Brown university, but was very kind of straightforward in that it was like, you know, the cure and the Smiths, et cetera. And, um, in middle school and high school, you know, like I, like it was interesting because the truth of the matter is I think that um, I grew up in Providence, then we moved across the border into rural Massachusetts, even though it was only 15 minutes away. And then I kind of returned there um, in the middle of college and, and then after college back to Providence. But like in our you know smaller town just over the border, um, th- you didn't need to do a thing to like seem like you were a transgressive or you know, like an art weirdo or whatever, than to like merely listen to, you know, the cure or something like that. That's all it took. (laughs) And so so on some level, like there wasn't that much more, there wasn't that much more need to kind of like dig deeper because you could just like flip on the radio and, and, uh, and you got to feel, you know, unique and special and see and understand who was your tribe. 
Um, but there were just so many trips to the record store, um, you know, often like just kind of like hand in hand with my dad, you know, when, when he'd be going to, I don't know, buy like an Emily Lou Harris record or whatever. And I would be going to like, you know, find something that, you know, I'd heard, uh, on the, on the radio or that I'd started to see, you know, the bands that I was into, like wearing the t-shirts of, you know, so like, like, so, you know, to see like a t-shirt on one of the members of like the Blake babies, um, that was, you know, a dinosaur junior shirt, or that was a Nirvana shirt, you know, bleacher Nirvana shirt or a, um, or a Sonic youth shirt, like those things just kind of kept, you know, opening those doors. But, but when I think about that time, um, I think actually what was, was so interesting to me, um, in like what was part, you know, besides the music being important to me, like the, the idea that was kind of interesting to me was just kind of like, was kind of sorting out, um, taste and hierarchy and who gets to say what's good and who, you know, who gets to say what isn't. And, you know, in like, you know, finding these things that like, that was just when I'm starting to find these bands that I cannot believe aren't the biggest bands in the world, you know? Right. And, um, but it really wasn't, but when, when I went off to college at, uh, at, uh, actually went to UC Santa Barbara, um, for a couple of years. And to, oh, you're a gaucho. I was a gaucho. <laughs> well, I was a gaucho. Then I was like a banana slug for a couple of semesters. Oh, sure, sure. And then, I, like, Cruz, right? and then <laughs> I left, then I left school and then I was, a. and then I moved back to Rhode Island and I was a Rhode Island college anchorman for, for, for the end of it. But like, but it was going to, it was going to school, um, and kind of like meeting these kind of like West coast kids and, um, you know, who like, and then, um, like in my, you know, and just sort of being at college and starting to go to DIY shows at the UFCW hall in Goleta, uh, North, you know, uh, North of Santa Barbara, um, was like really transformative, like being able to see, you know, uh, a kid my age, you know, putting on shows and being like, Oh, I like this band from Olympia. Let me literally just call them and get them down here. Like, you know, it was, that was my first exposure to like DIY to, to the DIY scene. And it also like was also my first opening to, um, heavy things that weren't like my brother's maiden records, you know, and like, you know, hard, like hardcore from, you know, like gravity records and like ebullition and, um, you know, just in, and in that scene where the shows were either booked by this kind of, you know, young, young townie, um, or by this guy, Kent McClard, who ran Ebullition Records, um, who would bring in like bands like Struggle and Iconoclast and stuff. It was either, um, there was this sort of mix where you get these shows that were like, that were hard and heavy and exciting, you know, to me and like felt really new and, um, were so sort of like, in whose politics, like bands like Los Crudos and Spitboy, whose like politics were so exciting and accessible. Um, but at the same time, like also bringing in um, that sort of like Pacific Northwestern, like non hardcore strain, like these, these Kill Rockstars bands and like K Records bands and things. And like, ha- and seeing, you know, these things that were also like essentially just as good at, as pop songwriters and as sort of like alternative presences as all that stuff that I'd sort of been listening to all through high school. Um, it was so exciting, you know, not just to sort of like be in the room, you know, it was that wonderful thing of being in the room with peers who were making things that were as good as anything else um, was, is fundamentally like, like, you know, uh, it's like it, in some ways it's just, it's about as important a thing as ever happened to me. 
Band merch is the name of the game when you are supporting independent bands. And Rockabilia.com is the place that not only outfits you with the latest and greatest in regards to band merch, but it pays all of the bands. This is not some, you know, two cents a stream sort of scenario. You know, no no shots against, uh, you know, those streaming platforms. But, you know, if you want to put money directly into the artist's pocket, best way you can do that is buy band merch. Use this code PC100WORDS. That gets you 15% off your order, and it will be supporting this awesome independent company called Rockabilia. So, I just I can't begin to tell you how much stuff they have because they have over half a million items and it's fast shipping, amazing customer service. You can get everything from, you know, hats and beanies. Sometimes in Canada they call them toques, long sleeves, sweaters. They even have sweats, puzzles, whatever you can think of, they have it. But I love this company and you should check out rockabilly.com and use the code PC100words. That gets you 15% off your order. So Thank you very much, Rockabilia. I did not know that you had the Santa Barbara experience because that is like it's very foundational for me as well. I was oh, dating, really? a, yeah, I was dating a girl that uh, went to UCSB, so like went to shows at the Living Room, the Pickle Patch, like became. Yeah, it's a little bit after my time, but yeah, yeah, but like you know, became friends with Kent McClard and Lisa over at Ebullition, sure. and it's like, and then you know, because those bands also came down to Southern California, a ton like Yafet Koto and like all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, and it, I find it so interesting that that happened. I mean, it makes sense that it happens in a college town, but mm-hmm. there, to your point, there was something that's so essential to the antithesis of what Heart Attack and Ebullition was putting out, where it's like, oh yeah, we're not going to review records with barcodes. And like right. all this wild stuff that you're like, wow, I didn't even consider it. And whether or not you agreed with it, you at least had to reckon with it in your own head about how you felt about it. Totally. And I think that's exactly yeah. what you're talking about, where all of these things were getting introduced to you in like breakneck fashion. And then you had to reckon with all of it and be like, oh, yeah. And then on top of it, there's some pretty cool music, too. Totally. And in like, you know, I mean, and then on the one hand, it's like it, that's the cliche of college, right? It's just like it's what you're supposed to figure out. But um, but, you know, it's a fast like it's a fascinating. I mean, I do think that that period um, and I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to pretend that uh, like one generation's music is better than the other. Like, I, like, I don't really care about that at the moment. Yep. But the thing that is, but I'm, but like, I really am sure. And I walk around with the idea that um, like Gen, Gen X is kind of a bullshit generation, but that said, we were also right about a ton of stuff, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, you know, it's all just, you know, it's, it, we are right about, um, about the politics of corporatism and we are right about the environment <laughs> and, you know, and to, to kind of like, you know, have borne witness, you know, and been around, um, and just kind of like, you know, cut your teeth on where you can just be like a regular MTV viewer and having to like, sort of like reckon with, you know, soy bomb at the MTV movie awards or music awards or with, you know, um, Michael Stipe, you know, tearing off his various t-shirts with his various slogans, um, you know, or whether it's like motor voter laws or whatever. Um, there was sort of like an engaged mainstream politics that made the underground politics, um, such an interesting, uh, you know, field to navigate. And that thing of like coming from, being sort of comfortably alternative, um, you know, and, you know, loving the Pixies and the first Smashing Pumpkins album, uh, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff to then 
you know, going into the sort of like, you know, Kent McClard world and the Kill Rockstars world, um, you know, was uh, like, there was something like very, I felt very kind of open hearted to it. And, but also like very aware that like, I did not need to personally fall into the pitfalls of like, you know, getting into, um, you know, war, like I did not, ne- I did not need to go to war over uh, the barcode or whatever at the same time. <laughs> sure. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, you don't want to use the word culture wars to exist because that means a much different thing in the broader context of yeah, society. Exactly. But, like, sure, sure. That's a, but yeah, that's what, I mean, at one point that is what people in the quote unquote scene that were, you know, really trying to create stuff. That is what they cared about. And then totally. like, I, like you're talking about, you're watching on the side being like, I care about certain aspects of this, but that seems a little trivial. No, but the, no, no, it wasn't. But the truth of the matter is, it wasn't that. It, it, like, um, uh, one of the most formative books for me, even though it's not necessarily even that good, but I read it sort of around this time. Was this uh, book called The Strawberry Statement, um, which is uh, this memoir by this dude, and I like use that word very specifically. There's this like kid who went to who was at Columbia during the time of like the the building takeovers and the anti-war protests, et cetera. And it's just this kind of like running diary um, about, you know, him occupying various buildings and stuff. And he is very much just like a guy who like is going along and kind of want to meet, kind of wants to meet girls and is kind of a poser and then would find himself in these situations where he was, where he was suddenly galvanized. And it wasn't that I connected with him, but what I saw in him um, was just that like, that like it is okay to be that like the culture gets moved because other people are willing to fight over barcodes, you know? And yeah, that's true. You know, that like that fundamentally, uh, even if, you know, there were times and periods, you know, and issues upon which I was not particularly radical or the, or, you know, other people or my friends radicalism was, um, was, uh, alienating on some level. Um, it was very clear to me, even at that time, and, and it just become more clear, you know, uh, over time, you know, as I've gotten older, that it is just fundamentally like it is a necessary service to be fucking hardcore, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and there, yeah. And so there was just something, you know, there, you know, uh, there was something particularly in that scene, even though I, you know, then kind of went on to be in other versions of it, there was something you know, so just fundamentally beautiful about the kind of like young people, you know, being a part of this thing where young people were making their own world, were finding their own aesthetics, you know, were doing it themselves. And uh, yeah, it was just this, just, it was this really kind of like powerful, um, you know, it was a very sort of beautiful experience and, and a really, you know, uh, formative and fun. Um, but it also, um, over and over and over again, it was just, I've always wanted some version of that, um, in, in what, in nearly every kind of collaboration. Like, um, I was just, you know, I've, I've become convinced sort of ever since, um, that, uh, that Ian McKay and like Candace Peterson at K records and Kent McClard in his own way. Um, and, uh, you know, my friend Ben McCosker ran load records in Providence that, um, that 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 is the right way to be a business person in the world you know that to yeah. that to find a you know that to allow your artists to own 
you know, own their masters or, you know, to have 50, you know, 50, 50 splits to really think about what you as the business owner is getting out of your, uh, you know, getting out of your employees and make sure they are proper, like properly compensated by giving them an ownership stake, et cetera, that like this, this, you know, that, that like to, it is so vitally important to me as a, you know, person who makes a living making art to be in a structure that allows me to do that. And with Radiotopia and, um, you know, and, and, and if, and if Radiotopia didn't exist, then, then there's like, I can't imagine doing this, um, in some way that wasn't sort of directly, uh, listener supported. And, um, and I don't know, like, like to me, when I think about, uh, when I think about sort of generation X being right, um, I'm not sure there's a better example of it than that. Sure. <laughs> I tell yeah, I, I appreciate that articulation. Cause I, I do think that, um, when you have been exposed to that, and I think that's you know why this stuff is so foundational in our in our DNA. Because once you experience the idea of you know DIY doing it yourself, and like not in the you know proverbial, because like I mean th- that that term is so cliched now; it doesn't mean anything. But it's like just the idea of oh yeah, like I don't need to ask permission. I mean, of course I'm going to do this show, and of course I'm going to start a band. Of course I'm going to put out a seven inch. Like all that stuff, you don't even know you're developing you know, business acumen or accounting or like all that, you're just doing it, you know? And then you take that and you apply it to different areas of your life. And that's obviously why, you know, so many people spin off doing all of these interesting things that might not directly be applicable to the fact that like, oh, you're putting out records or, oh, you're playing in a band. You're like, well, I'm doing this other thing. And it's just completely influenced by everything that I experienced in these small sweaty rooms. Yeah, totally. It's just like, how many people do you know who like, you know, whose like uncle might've thought they were a fuck up, you know, until they were 28, 29. But then, you know, even if they frankly went to like some corporate job or whatever, they went at 28 or 29 or 30 and they started skipping steps because they'd actually been spending the past several years like doing stuff, you know, whether it was booking shows or booking tours, you know, or learning how to do technical things that allowed them to, you know, jump into film editing or whatever it was. Like all of the things, you know, all of those, those, uh, you know, those sort of traditional kind of like DIY, uh, you know, uh, skills and habits were like, were ultimately like professional habits. And, you know, uh, even if you, even if one wanted to sell out, <laughs> so to yeah, speak, sure. um, you know, you, you were able, you know, you had not been fucking around while you were fucking around, which I really <laughs> appreciate. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and so, you know, kind of looking at the the fact of you know when you were starting to kind of, kind of navigate what the heck it was that you you know wanted to quote unquote do with your life, you know, sure. um, did you uh, you know did you ever have the idea that you, like, yes, I want to play in a band, or did that seem so? Yeah, yeah no, 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 yeah. I definitely did. Like, you know, I played in you know I was like in a in I was the world's worst uh, punk rock drummer in you know a band Santa Cruz. Um, and I was like, in a, I was in a band in high school, like this sort of, you know, weird, we were like a weird alternative band, uh, making goofy songs. And then, uh, when I returned to Providence, um, you know, I had left, uh, Santa Cruz. It was, you know, essentially what should have been my senior year in college was a little bit of like, a, I, it became my junior year. And, uh, I went, you know, started to go to Rhode Island college where my parents both taught special ed. So I was able to go essentially for free, which, which it allowed me to like do it. And, um, and then, you know, I essentially got into the music scene and started playing in, you know, a kind of like 
noise pop band um, called Bermuda that like had like a really solid kind of like year and a half or so of like getting to, you know, open up for bands we loved, et cetera, and, you know, put out a seven inch and, and uh, play out of town a little bit. But um, in, in that itself, like the um, always kind of having, you know, not only was it like, I did have experience of like, of playing shows and, and having that, that thing of, you know, getting to just kind of like meet other bands and like feel like a part of it. It wasn't sort of until I kind of returned to Providence and I was like 23, 24 or so um, and playing in that band that like I had the, like the deeply formative experience of like a having kind of like pulled off a thing that I've always wanted to do, uh, which is, you know, like it, which is the thing that one, you know, that I want for my daughter, (laughs) you know, just like Mm -hmm. to be able to be like, Oh, I've admired people that do this thing. And here I am doing it. Can like, what, what can there, what can, what better can there be for, you know, someone in their twenties? Um, but also there was just this, frankly, this like great experience of, you know, opening up for people whose music I just loved and people who, who like, I was just so excited to know and occasionally have them be cool, but like more often than not, just like have them kind of be sort of lame or like super weirdos. There was something that, that as, you know, a person trying to figure out what, what, not just what to do, but also like what I could be in the world. There was something so empowering and just fundamentally starting to realize that like, oh, like, you know, put the music on the pedestal. You don't need to put the person on the pedestal. Like, like, you know, this, this thing about like the musicians, uh, you know, getting, you know, being one myself, getting to know people who were, um, you know, and, you know, it's really starting at the time to kind of like get into uh, history and stuff like that. And just starting to like, just fundamentally know that the people you read about are just, just people, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is not something I know. I, I don't know that I necessarily knew, but it was, uh, but like that experience of just kind of like, of, you know, you know, I had sort of been on the scene in terms of like going to shows for, for years, like, you know, when I'd be home from school and, and, and going to see like a pretty thriving indie rock scene in Providence. Mm-hmm. But then when I really kind of moved back, that's when, um, that's when they're like uh, the sort of like Fort Thunder bands, like which was like Lightning Bolt and yep. and all those guys, um, and uh, you know which was a, which was an entirely different you know uh, kind of DIY scene in that like um, it, it wasn't quite as political and it wasn't quite at, like it didn't have the didn't have the culture war things. It was ultimately just kind of like a you know art art school music scene, but it was also just like fundamentally you know, so much of it was just phenomenal, you know, so right. much of it was just this experience of just sort of like watching lightning bolts, you know, um, in, you know, in Brian Chippendale's, you know, loft or whatever, and surrounded by like, you know, friends and strangers, et cetera. And just being, just being sure, just being fundamentally sure that this was as good of place as you could possibly be in the world at that moment. Um, yeah. like that experience and like in being, you know, like by far, like, you know, the most, probably the most formative show I ever saw, um, was, you know, like 17 people or so, um, at the UFCW hall in, uh, Santa Barbara and Goleta and seeing this band called Portraits of Past. Um, oh, yeah. yep. and it was just, they played for 14 minutes and I was just like, it was, it was just as good a 14 minutes as I've ever spent in my life. And it was just this feeling of, of just like being so sure 
of the of the value of the things that I loved and being so sure that I did not need external you know measures of that value you know I did not need porches of past to be on the cover of rolling stone and I didn't need you know uh I didn't need lightning bolt to you know to uh you know, whatever to like, to open up, to be on the main stage of Lollapalooza or whatever that like, you know, that I could trust myself and that, you know, that sort of combination of, of, you know, learning that like, Oh, anyone can do this thing. Um, if, if you work hard enough and you hustle, um, but also that, that there are these things that you love that you just know are right, um, has totally been, um, the things that guided me toward doing something like, like the memory palace and then being the, the, I don't know, like the internal drive of just being like, no, no, no. If I like this thing, it's worth doing. If I like, if this thing moves me, then I'm, then it's worth putting out, et cetera. And I, there's no way, um, that I'd be doing anything close to what I'm doing if I hadn't had those experiences. (laughs) Sure. I, I really, um, I, I love that. I mean, that you, you articulated that feeling so uh, appropriately in regards to, you know, being in that room, seeing that thing happening. And it's like, it doesn't, it's like you're looking around just being like, are you seeing this? Like, this is insane. Like, yeah. you know, I'm watching an albatross freak out in front of me or whatever. Like, you're just, you have that. Uh, and it, it's, it's so, it, it's so hard to describe to a person who hasn't been there. And I know that sounds like so elitist, but it's right. just, it, it it's true. It's just the actual fact. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um. And so as you started to you know kind of do a bunch of things within the context of you know all, all different colleges you were going to and the the right. studies that you were pursuing, um. You know the what was the life path as it was kind of like laid out to you in regards to the pursuit that you wanted to um you know focus on. Um, I think that that you know. Uh, so, you know, it was in the band that was finally pretty good and the, and the band broke up, you know, for sort of like interpersonal reasons. And it was such like a loss, you know, cause it was just such like, it was this thing that I just loved doing and something that had felt so right. And it was something that I'd been wanting to do for so long. And, um, but it was so sort of like purely correct for like, oh, this should be like part of my life. But I also like, I wasn't that good. Like I, like, uh, I'm like weirdly a pretty good drummer now. Um, from like playing in my garage with like my electronic drum kit, but like in college I was a terrible drummer. And and then in this band, I sang and played guitar, but the, uh, the drummer, um, and the, uh, guy who played bass, um, were so much better than I was. And their whole thing was like, let's take Nate songs and like, let's like, you know, let's like elevate them and whatever. And as a result, like I was never a person who could, uh, you know, I, I just like, I could, I could barely play with them. (laughs) And so I was not a person who could then go and just like start some other band. Like they were better than I was. There was some kind of magic in the way that we all three, you know, uh, worked together. But a lot of that was that they were like willing to work around me. And, um, so I just kind of knew that I could not like replicate the same thing, um, on, on this, at the same level. Like I just couldn't, wasn't going to, you know, likely be able to kind of like catch that kind of like lightning in a bottle. And which was both kind of a depressing thought, but it was also like bracing in that I was like, okay, how can I not, you know, what do I love about this thing? And how can I not 
you know, how can I not let it slip away? So what is it that I love about doing this thing? Because like, I can also look ahead and see that pretty soon I might feel a little bit too old for some of these rooms. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so like, even if I had another thing to just shift into another band to just shift, shift into, like, I don't know, like at some point, like I, I just, I know myself and I'm going to want to feel responsible. And I'm going to want to make like enough money to make sure that I'm paying my own bills, et cetera. And I can't, you know, I know that I can't, you know, entirely like live, you know, uh, uh parking cars and making $75 a night or whatever, playing music. And, um, and so, so I really just was like really reflective and, and like really just kind of like interrogated like what it was I loved about playing in a band and and a lot of it was stuff like I want the possibility to travel like I want to make beautiful things like I love working really hard to like get ready for a thing and then like presenting it publicly and then having it just be over and then starting all over again and I just started to try to figure out like what is the thing that will allow me to do that um, and uh, I ended up kind of like stumbling toward the knowledge that like radio might do that and particularly like public radio might do that that like there might be a way to like you know work for this american life or like a report for all things considered or whatever that would be collaborative that would like allow me to travel that would like have me you know having interesting experiences and and you know and meeting interesting people and all the stuff that like was the promise of being in a band um you know while also you know on a good day like really being able to like make something that, you know, um, had the same kind of power that like a song did, you know, like I, I remember, um, like, you know, since I've been very, very little, I've been like semi obsessed with thinking about like, like music and memory and just the, the real magic of, of being kind of like taken over by a song. And as like, and thinking particularly about the way that that worked in radio. Um, and, I remember really specifically like just driving around and catching some story and all things considered, which is just so like devastating. It was just a tragic story and thinking to myself that like, Oh, this is the only other thing that can, that can do the same thing that music does is like listening to the radio, not knowing what to expect and then having something like come into your life uh, accidentally and change it temporarily and just like change whether it's just to change the trajectory of your day and like bring like a new like a different kind of emotionality like that doesn't that really doesn't happen um in any kind of structured way but that's the thing that i love most about life it's like it's running into the friend you like to me the perfect day which is so hard to replicate as you're older and hard to replicate in la by the nature and certainly impossible to do in the pandemic is is bumping into someone you haven't seen for a while who says, "Oh, I'm about to do this thing. Do you want to come?" <laughs> you yeah, know? like that, yeah. like that. And I just and I knew that there's something about being in the music scene. There's something about you know being in a band that was like that was baked into the experience. And I wanted to find a career that allowed me to to live that way, and uh, it worked out for the most yeah. part. <laughs> sure. Right. Right. Yeah. There, there's always a circuitous route to these things, but yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I'm sure that this, uh, you know, ha- this thought has maybe permeated in your head as well in regards to, you know, I mean, once you started to, you know, like you said, work in radio and have the idea to, you know, do the memory palace and everything. And, you know, clearly you're, well, not clearly, but you are obviously also writing for TV and movies and stuff like that. 
the idea of you know imposter syndrome, where you know especially from where we kind of come from, just the idea that like when we're interacting with quote unquote normal civilians, and I use that you know not in a non pejorative manner, sure, sure. <laughs> but like that that idea creeps in your head where it's just like, well, these people did did it the right way, and I obviously like, how the hell am I here? Um, does that? Uh, I guess ever kind of come into your head as far as like, Oh, I'm in this writer's room at parks and rec and I'm doing this, or, you know, I guess I'm making a movie. Um, how does that ping pong in your head? Wait, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry. I actually need to kind of answer the question again. I'm like, not, I mean, ask the question. I'm not sure that I understand, understand it. No, it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- with the notion of, uh, you know, a- as you started to be a professional human and start to ic- sure. interact with people that have, uh, you know, not had the same experiences that we've had, um, not saying that that's yeah. good or bad, the the idea of imposter syndrome comes up where oh, sure. you are feeling like, okay, uh, I know how I got here, um, which is a non-conventional way. Most of these other people probably did the right way, you know, going right. to school, get, get an internship, doing the thing. Um, and I know in creative arts, it's a little bit, sure. you know, more movable. But, uh, you know, as you started to step into these things and we're, we're doing the adult stuff, uh, did you feel that kind of like, wow, what am I doing here? Like, this is weird. No, I mean, you know, no, I don't think, no, I didn't in part because I think that like a lot of, a lot of that work got done early, <laughs> you know, that like, okay, sure. that, that there was something about, you know, um, the experience of, of being, you know, the sort of like DIY show experience and stuff like that, that, that there was this, like, it was just so clear that, um, that alternative ways of, of living, um, were, were almost, you know, were better, <laughs> you know, that like, it didn't mean that like one couldn't sort of aspire to like, nuclear family and in, in a house in the suburbs or whatever like it wasn't you know in a judgment it wasn't a judgmental way but just that that when it all came down to it like you know that the paths that like these people were taking to be in those rooms um there was no sort of rule book for and in that when they got there they were experiencing something you know that was magic and that was on par with any other experience you know one could have on that evening anywhere in the world and um so i think that like you know, that, that idea about like, um, whether it was like kind of like helping build sort of like self, it wasn't just that it was kind of like helping build sort of like self-belief and like a kind of like confidence that would allow me in certain areas to like, you know, push aside imposter syndrome. It was just that fundamentally, um, no one could, this is a dumb thing to say, but like, (laughs) like that, like if, if Keith Richards or whatever, you know, or the rock and roll hall of fame, fame told, uh, uh, you know, porches of past or something like that, sure. or, or Mohinder that like they weren't valid and worthy. Then like it was idiotic, <laughs> right? Totally, <laughs> you know. And yeah. so like, there, yeah, I think that there really is something you know about that kind of like rooted into it. Like, it definitely there was also a little bit of like a chip on my shoulder. Like there was something about you know about being proud of like you know coming from like graduating from you know a commuter school that advertises on television, and yet like being able to like be in a room with like, you know, Ivy League graduates or whatever like that. There was something like, if anything, it was like, uh, it was like uh, a sign of honor as, a, as opposed to uh, making me feel less than. Right. No, that's a good point. You, you definitely, especially too, when, you know, you like you're talking about these, 
younger years when you're, you know, I mean, even if you're playing shows in front of, you know, 15 people, there's still that, you know, performative nature, you getting in front of people, like all those things that uh, many humans experience fear for, like you just do. (laughs) And you're just like, well, I'm just, of course I'm playing a show. Like, so there's no fear in that. I'm just going to, you know, like, yeah, I'll drop a stick, but like, I'll pick one up and I'll, I'll figure it out from there. So I see that direct correlation of what you're talking about. And then the other, I mean, the other really important thing um, about particularly the DIY scene as it was like constituted in on the West Coast um, and particularly you know, in Goleta. And I got the sense that it was similar in San Diego and, and, sim- and certainly definitely in, in, in Olympia and in Portland and stuff like that was that it wasn't it, that, um, you know, like a lot of East Coast hardcore that, that like I was from like vaguely familiar with, like from like older kids or, or going to record stores, like bands like Slapshot and stuff. Um, you know, like it was, there was just something so broy about it. And like, as like a sensitive, like a super sensitive, like overly sensitive, like teenager, um, you know, then like going to these shows and to see them, you know, to like, you know, see bands like heavens to Betsy or like spit boy and to kind of like be a little bit of like wit- witness to some of the, you know, or, but certainly peripheral to some of the, you know, the, the kind of like controversies that would like bubble up around like gender and identity um, and, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, in other, you know, other sort of like identity issues in like the pages of Heart Attack or at shows and stuff like that, that there were that like those things too about sort of like you know demanding that um that uh i don't know that power structures of all sort of types like calling bullshit on power structures of all types um was you know even just sort of like as uh was weirdly uh was both was sort of empowering across the board and just like really just like changed the way that i would kind of perceive power structures as I would attempt to move, move in them, move into them. And like, at the same time, like also sort of like bolstered by like, you know, a, like a gendered white guy confidence and very aware of that. But at the same time, like they're, they're, you know, I, I truly, you know, just think about, you know, um, I think I, I, like, of, I think about all that I sort of like owe to that period of my life and the way that it, um, you know, kind of opened me up to the world and set, you know, gave me certain skills to like operate in the world. Um, but to also just kind of like, you know, know both to kind of like what to demand of the world, but also like to be aware of where I'm sort of like failing my failing the world and failing myself, um, has just been fundamentally, um, both formative and, and generative, like all, all this time. Sure. When, for you, you know, specifically with Memory Palace, um, you know, as you started to put it out there, I mean, like you were talking about, or you didn't mention this, but the idea that the expectations of putting it out there was predominantly on you, where it's like, I get joy out of this, so I'm doing this, you know, so I'm going to put this out there. Um, When did you first kind of feel that feedback of like, oh, this is real, like people are caring about it, you know? Um, (laughs) Like, how, how did that transpire? I mean, it was, it was pretty, it was lucky that it was pretty early on. Some of that was, some of that, you know, was probably, you know, had to do with the work, but I think a lot of it just had to do with, um, 
uh, where uh, podcasting was and where social media was. So like, you know, I released the first episode in like the end of 2008 and it was 100% within the season that everyone got Facebook. And it was just the kind of thing that like, it was before people had, uh, were over it. And it was before people had like, were thinking too much about like people just sharing stuff with impunity, you know? And so I like made an episode and I, you know, sent like a note to my public radio friends and my public radio friends kind of amplified it. And then I, you know, put it, you know, out. And it was just at the time where instead of like, you know, your uncle and some friend you went to high school with, like, you know, clicking like or whatever, like people would just like share, share, share. And it weirdly like, you know, grew very quickly in part because of that. And then like, there were just a couple of like, like Boing Boing, someone at Boing Boing noticed uh, an episode. And then uh, someone at the, um, the Freakonomics blog at the New York Times. And so suddenly it went from like having like 300 listeners to having like 17,000 or like 30,000, like really quickly, like seven episodes in or something. Mm-hmm. In part just because like, I, th- I think that it was, it, was, it was fresh and people were, you know, interested in finding stuff in a way that like, you know, is just became harder and harder and harder. Um, but, there, but for the first like two, three years of the show, maybe even longer, um, I was very much trying to make it work in the straight world. Like I was essentially really trying to make it click in public radio, like to use it as like a springboard for some like hour long show or whatever. But two things happened. And one was that I just realized that, no, this is actually what I like doing. I like these short things. And cause it was so clear to me that like, Oh, I used to love writing songs and I'm kind of writing songs again. Right. <laughs> um, and, and then the other thing that happened, um, uh, was that it stopped, like, it was very clear professionally that the show um, was more valuable, more literally valuable as a calling card than it was on its own terms. And so, like, to have, um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, who's one of the creators of Parks and Recreation, be like, oh, let's bring, uh, Nate knows a lot about history because I enjoy his show and I know personally that he's funny, like maybe he can like come up with like a, a historical backstory for, you know, Pawnee, Indiana. And then that would lead, then that led to like writing an episode and stuff like that. And like other, you know, things, it was like very clear that, um, that it, for, in order for it to work as a calling card, um, then it just needed to be, it needed to be consistently really good. And it was very clear that the things that the people were connecting to the most that came calling were often the weirder ones that I liked most personally. And so it was just this, like, it was this demonstrable sign that like, just, it was kind of like, keep doing what you're doing kid. But the other thing about it was, it was also clear that it was not going to work, but like changing, it was not going to get me anywhere. And so there was just this point where, you know, I remember very specifically thinking back to a night um, after my band had broken up. um, And when I was like 24, 25 or something like that. And, um, I was in the car and I was meeting a couple of friends um, uh, at a movie theater in Providence to see When We Were Kings, that documentary. Mm-hmm. And on like the lo- the University of Rhode Island's college uh, station, um, someone had like a had, was doing his radio show and you know played was playing a couple songs and then said, "Man, it's a rainy night. I got a lot going on in my personal life. I'm just going to play stuff that I love tonight. Like I'm thro- I'm throwing out my plans." And then he played, you know, one of the songs from our seven inch. 
And I really just remember being kind of heartbroken that it was over, but it's so excited to kind of hear it at the radio. But mostly I remember like being so excited to hear it in that context, just to like know that there was this connection with this dude who was having a bad time. And it was just like very aware that that's that, that right there is the only thing to want. You just want to make something that someone wants played at their funeral or at their wedding or when they're kind of having the bad time. And I remembered thinking, you know, when I was 24, 25 or so, that the best life in the world would be to have, uh, to, to have an art project with an audience. And so there, whatever it was at 37 or something like that with the Memory Palace, however old I was, um, I was like, oh, shoot, I have that. And I was like, I'm like, well, why want more? Like, yeah, like I'll try to push hard and I'll like try to professionalize it and whatever, but like do it, do it this way. Like this is where the art lives. Like this is what it is. Um, you know, like you're living the dream right now. Like go find other ways to like, right. I, f- I found it. <laughs> yeah. if, like if you need to like find other ways to make a living, fine, but like keep doing this. And, um, you know, and then it just, it, it just, you know, the, 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 the industry changed and matured enough that like I, Roman was able to like talk to me and be like, I think you can make a living doing this now. Yeah. Um, and then to have it be, to have it be Roman and, and to be able to be like, you know, to just like have a dude who was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I read all that shit. I read all, I read every interview I could with Ian McKay and, and I, you know, read, uh, like I, like, this is just my thing. Like, I just want to, I want to have like a, a DIY network that, that, uh, operates that way. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we're taking this over to podcasting guys. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, the last, the last thing I wanted to hit on was the, uh, well, it's kind of a, a twofold, like for one, how do you interact with music, uh, now? Like, do you find yourself, just kind of going back to, you know, your old favorites, uh, you know, do you try to seek out new music or where does music kind of play a part uh, in what you are, you know, consuming? And then obviously, you know, directly relating to your podcast as well. Well, I mean, I think that, that I've never, um, I really, I've like just, I, I continue to be about music. Um, like I, like I like music differently. Like I think as one, as we all do, like, you know, it is, it is difficult to, you know, when you have so many songs that are a part of you, it is it is difficult to have the new ones that come in. Like you can't be seventeen again, you know. But that yep. said, um, I've like I don't. There hasn't been like a like a day in my life when I haven't kind of been seeking out something new. And you know that might well be just like oh, let me go back and find the great song off the old Rolling Stones record that I, that I you know haven't listened to in many years or whatever. Um, but no, like like new music like the quest for new music is just like, is just fundamental to like, to who I am. It's just like, I just want to find new stuff that I find beautiful and, 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 and that I love. So like, yeah, no, I'm, you know, it's, I'm constantly just sort of like, you know, whatever, like read, like a dude, like reading pitchfork and stereo gum gum and stuff. And, you know, and then just sort of like diving through, um, you know, Spotify, the entirely unproblematic uh, uh, format. Of course, no problems at all. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Just sort of like searching and searching and searching. And like, and just like, I, you know, like, I just remember a day, I don't know, like nine years ago, um, being like, oh, I remember, um, I just like, I just was suddenly like, oh, I remember thinking about Motorhead 
And then like knowing that, you know, he was in Hawkwind and then knowing that the pink fairies are involved somehow and like thinking about all of those sort of proto punk and like proto metal bands that like, I've just kind of like heard about, but never listened to. And like over the course of like four and a half hours, like literally listening to everything. And it's just like that incredible gift of like the internet being able to just be like, you know, whatever. And so on a given day, there's probably, you know, I listen to music all the time and there's probably, uh, you know, 20 tracks that are new from new bands that I like am obsessed with. And there's also like 20, you know, things that are the digital equivalent of like crate digging. Like I just like, I recently got really into the Fleetwoods, which is the, which is that like very, very, very twee, very white, um, doo-wop group, um, from the fifties. And I just find like everything they do just so beautiful. As right. it all is. And I'll be into the Fleetwoods for like four more days and then forget about it for months. And then there'll be like the one song that, that carries with me, but yeah. it's just, it's um, perpetual. And then I also like, you know, went on just, just earlier today, may- maybe because of this conversation, like went on this, like, you know, YouTube dive, like finding those two or three beloved, like indie rock records that, you know, aren't on Spotify and that the CDs all messed up and, you know, listening to like this band, the God rays who were like a Providence band. And then listening to like the first Henry's dress record, which I love so much and hadn't heard in like 25 years. Right. It is, and it is so uh, like, I mean, music is so transportational. I mean, that's, I don't know if that's yeah. a word, but like, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Just, it's transporting, just, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It just, uh, yeah. It puts you back in that space. You know, even if you haven't uh, listened to that record and like, you know, even just saying like band names, like, you know, yeah. you're saying ports of the past. I'm just like, Oh, oh gosh. Like that just blew some memory. And like, that's the, that's what's so interesting yeah. about music. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Nate, I could uh, I could probably punish you for another hour, but you know, we'll, it looks like we'll have to start a San Diego hardcore podcast uh, in, 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 in tangent to this. But uh, yeah, thanks yeah. for hanging out, dude. I really appreciate it. I was so happy to talk to you, Ray. That was such a fun conversation. I know that like it's one of those <laughs> chats that as I'm having it, I'm just like peeling away the layers of excitement in my own head of just like, whoa, he knows this band and oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So yeah, thank you very much to Nate for coming on the show uh, because yeah, I, like I said, I'm a huge fan of his podcast and if you have not listened to The Memory Palace, you need to do so immediately because you will greatly enjoy the show. And uh, next week, I have another legend in my own head, uh, and frankly, in many people's heads, Mike Williams. He is the vocalist for I Hate God. And I mean, I can't tell you how excited I am to have him on the show. But again, comparing and contrasting. So this week, we have a podcaster. Next week, we have a legend in the, you know, sludge metal, hardcore, whatever you want to call them. I Hate God is a luminary within that scene. So that's what we got next week. And they have a new record out. So it's all the more exciting. But next week, Mike Williams. I love it. Okay. Until then, please be safe, everybody.